Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Sirius XM, channel 127. Welcome to Progress After Dark. Good evening to everybody out there on the West Coast. Hello to everybody else in the Middle and the East Coast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I'm John Fugel saying, here in Manhattan, New York City, Thea is producing us from Brooklyn. Chris, our executive producer, down in South Carolina. You've probably heard of McKinsey before, but if you're like me, you probably don't have a very firm idea of what it is they do. They've been around since 1926, and they're considered to be the most prestigious consulting firm in the world. They reported more than $15 billion in revenue just last year. They employ over 45,000 people around the world in 133 different offices. McKinsey says they've served more than 3,000 clients, including nearly every one of the world's 100 biggest corporations. Our next guest, Garrison Lovely, joined McKinsey, hoping that he could change the world for the better, and he wanted to do it in their work at the notoriously evil Rikers Island prison, where McKinsey famously scammed New York City taxpayers out of $27.5 million without a lot to show for it. Mr. Lovely then went on to work for the Immigrations and Custom Enforcement, ICE, during the very early Trump years. And he soon learned that what McKinsey promised to do for the world and what they actually did were very different things. His new cover story for The Nation is called Confessions of a McKinsey Whistleblower. And in it, Garrison Lovely shows a rare look behind the curtain of what the culture's like at the most powerful management consulting firm in the world. And it turns out, it ain't pretty. It's a real pleasure to welcome Garrison Lovely to SiriusXM. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you so much. I learned so much from this piece, and I have to admit, I, I never really pondered too deeply what it is McKinsey does. I, I, no one really talks about it. What, what does McKinsey do on paper? What is the service that they offer these clients? So in their telling, they are problem solvers. They work for large organizations, typically for-profit businesses, anybody who can afford to hire them, basically, and they can run into the millions of dollars a month to bring in a McKinsey team. And the problems that they purport to solve are often, at the end of the day, trying to enhance profitability for these companies. But it might be entering a new market. It might be finding cost savings, often in the form of labor reductions. In some of the examples uh, from my time there, it was trying to reduce violence in Rikers Island, which is a bit out of the wheelhouse of, of McKinsey. 
or helping ICE deport immigrants faster. But at the end of the day, it's about helping organizations execute on their missions, uh, whatever they may be. And it's a huge, huge range of things. Um, and, and many of those projects are, are pretty banal and, and boring, but some of them end up actually doing pretty awful things, which uh, I was party to. I mean, it's a it's a very famous organization that helps companies maximize their profits, whatever that means, whether it's getting rid of PR problems or let's say you want to lay off thousands of people in the most tasteful way. You'd hire McKinsey, right? Yeah, I mean, PR might be like a specialty for a PR firm, but but especially layoffs like it. It's often CEOs who want to strike out and do some new initiative or yeah, they're looking for cost savings. They might even have an idea in their head of what they want to do. And then they bring in McKinsey uh, with some marching orders. McKinsey does a bunch of analysis. And wouldn't you know it, the CEO's idea actually has a bunch of really good empirical evidence behind it. And here's how you would execute on that if you chose to follow our advice, which is really often a cover for whatever the management wanted to do in the first place. It's really fascinating. I'd love to ask you, Garrison, tell us where you were in your life when you first were exposed to McKinsey recruiting materials and and why that appealed to you. Yeah, I mean, I, like many people, had some kind of tangential connection to the firm. Um, It's a very privileged place full of a lot of, you know, very wealthy, white, you know, people from good universities. So my mom's cousin had worked there at one point, and I was more interested in the fact that he had written for The Economist. I was like a very weird kid and my politics were pretty different but i just became aware of it in in that sense i read this book uh the firm by duff mcdonald which is a a history of mckinsey and it it goes into a lot of detail about various ways they did bad things in the world but then also how they invented the barcode in part and how they came up with the chief of staff position and all these things that like genuinely shape the world we live in and so i was like well these people seem to be kind of at the center of making things happen and seems to be a place where you can work with like smart people and and do high level work even as a very young person. And so that was pretty appealing to me. I don't remember exactly coming across the the recruiting materials, but when I was being recruited, they sold things like the the project uh, reducing violence at Rikers as like a thing I could possibly work on and, and something I did end up working on. But the recruitment for young people like yourself is always about make the world better. It always appeals to altruism of young people who are willing to work really hard for a good living to actually see positive results in the world for all their efforts, right? Yeah, I I think that is a thing that separates McKinsey from, you know, Goldman Sachs, where if you're going to work for Goldman Sachs, I don't think, I mean, they might have similar recruiting materials, but it's like, we are sharks. You could be one of the sharks. We're really good. We make a lot of money. McKinsey, obviously, people make a lot of money there, but it's not the top paying job at elite universities. Uh, it's also not the, the lightest workload either. Uh, the, the pitch is something like, yeah, you can have it all. You can do well and do good at the same time uh, by working for governments, by helping businesses become more sustainable or whatever it might be. And you know, if you look at their website, the practice case interviews there's, I think, seven of them now, and something like four or five of those seven have some kind of pro-social angle, and that just is not representative at all of the work, at least when I was there, which is, by and large, just making businesses more profitable and helping government agencies, whether it's ICE or whether it's the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, achieve whatever mission they might have. 
<laughs> and whoever heard of either of those entities doing anything that wasn't purely altruistic? I found That's it right. fascinating hearing how seductive it was for all the, the offerees to work with McKinsey to go to uh, the celebration weekend. Can you can you tell me what that was like when you first felt like you were on the verge of winning this incredible opportunity? They really treated uh, all the young recruits quite well. Yeah, it, it's like one of the harder things to get as a university student is like a job offer from McKinsey. And once you get it, all the effort goes into convincing you to take the job. And so they'll fly you down to the office where you receive the offer. They'll put you up in a nice hotel. They'll take you out to a fancy dinner. There will be top shelf alcohol flowing freely. There were many bottles of champagne that you got if you accepted the offer. The Philadelphia office had a tradition of telling limericks, kind of like nerdy white people doing like their equivalent of a rap battle. And mm. you write the limerick and deliver it drunkenly in front of everybody. And I think I accepted my offer in this way. Um, it, it's like pretty raucous. And at that point, it's more like you're in the club. You know, you've made it into the secret society that like doesn't rule the world the way the Illuminati, you know, is perceived to do, but right. is the closest thing to it, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, sure. And it's, it's less about like, we're here to make the world better and more like you've made it. You're, you're important now. I have to say, um, I really admire that you wanted to work at Rikers Island Prison. Uh, the best, one of my best friends, one of the best people I know worked at Rikers for a couple of years as a teacher, and it almost broke her. It's a notoriously uh, horrible place. And I'm curious, yeah. what was the appeal to you of going to work and be of service in this particular location? Uh, yeah, as an undergraduate, I had started a student group dedicated to prison reform and education. I had also been a teaching assistant at a maximum security prison in upstate uh -huh. New York. And uh, working at Rikers to reduce violence, it felt like a way to actually beat the rubber in the road uh, and, and implement reforms at a correctional facility and just have more access and, and information and like ability to influence things. And I just didn't really care about like making some business slightly more profitable and increasing shareholder value for some anonymous rich people. Um, I wanted to work at a place where the mission, you know, Riker's mission is like one that I fundamentally disagree with more or less. Um, but reducing violence at a place that is just so horrible, like that seems good and something I could get behind. And so that was like a huge part of this sell for, for why I went to McKinsey versus some hedge fund or tech firm that can offer a similar deal. Amen. Um, before we get into the specifics of the work, I'm curious, what were your hours like when you worked at Rikers and what was your commute like? So the folks at home can get a sense of this. Yeah. So I was based in Philadelphia. So I would spend Monday through Thursday living in a hotel. Usually it's a fancy hotel. In our case, it was like a Sheraton Four Points in Queens, which is like not a super fancy hotel. And you would go in, maybe like work 10 hours in the office or something like that and then often some work at home. There's an expectation that you, Monday morning, you meet with your manager, you have some tasks to do, you check in in the middle of the day, check in in the evening before you leave the office. And there's like some expectation of work done after dinner or after you leave the office. And I was working at the corporate center for the first 10 weeks, but then I got extended on the project because they were uncertain about me. And I ended up having to work on a different team that went behind the gate. So working within one of the facilities at Rikers, we met at something like 5 or 5.30 a.m. at a deli in Queens, got sandwiches, and then got over to the facility. And this was to be at the facility when the guards changed shift. And but that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a train to a boat to a prison island every day. 
Just, just uh, so, so we actually would drive over this bridge. There was like a rental okay, car great. that one of us had. So there's like a three lane bridge, one way to get in, uh, more or less. And brilliant. Yeah, we were just there to like kind of show face and be like, hey, we're in this with you. You know, there was this idea that we had to get the respect of the rank and file correctional officers to have any influence in the facility, uh, which meant that I was getting up at like you know four thirty in the morning every day, and I'm not much of a morning person, so I was like pretty miserable for that whole time, but. You know, this is just like the the expectation of McKinsey consultant is just do what is best for the client. You write in the piece that at the end of the standard 10 week internship, McKinsey wasn't sure about me. What does that mean? And, and how did you know? Uh, well, they told me. <laughs> OK, uh, ba- basically, yeah, they saw some spikes is what they call it. You know, things that I was strong at. So like I was good at connecting with clients. Uh, I wasn't so great at Excel. And I think the work I was doing was just like not super typical for McKinsey analysts. And so they wanted more information. Um, and so they had me do this extra stint, which had only happened once before. And honestly, I think the reason I got the return offer was because I was willing to just get up and show up at 5.30 a.m. And I think as much as McKinsey prides itself on being a place for the best and the brightest, it's like really people who are willing to suffer who often succeed there. If you're willing to just put in 14, 16 hour days for weeks and months on end and not complain too much and just keep delivering, you know, passable work. Like that is the thing that makes McKinsey work. And you, you write that when you entered this internship, you were a borderline prison abolitionist, but over the time you worked there, by the end of the summer, you say you had grown to like a lot of the people working there and that you had come to respect your McKinsey colleagues and you felt you learned a lot. I'm curious, what what changed and when did you start getting an idea that maybe the work wasn't what you had planned on it being? Yeah, I I don't know if my actual politics on corrections like changed so much as like I did just start to humanize the the people on the other side of it. You know, when you're an activist or an educator, you see the administration of the prison as the oppressor class who are causing lots of problems. But then when you're working at McKinsey, you're serving management and you're serving at Rikers, like the, the people who are in control, theoretically, and you just end up identifying more and more with them. And I, I don't think this is like that surprising. I think it's just hard as a human to not uh, go in and, and connect with people. I think it's like one of the things that makes humanity great is that we can connect with others. But um, I also had to learn that like being interpersonally kind is not the same as being actually good. Wow. Uh, you were there around the Khalif Browder time, weren't you? Yeah, I think Khalif Browder had killed himself just before I started or around the time I started. And some security footage came out, published by The New Yorker, of him being assaulted by a a guard and being assaulted by about a dozen other uh, incarcerated people while the guards like just completely failed to control the situation. Mm, It it seems like... It seems like there was a good amount of drinking going by from people working for McKinsey who were trying to to self-medicate with the extreme conditions. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a quote in the piece, which is from a friend of mine who said something like, alcoholism at McKinsey is overrepresented and under-discussed. You have a lot of expense dinners, you're traveling away from home a lot. You know, if the drinks are free and the hours are long and it's like the the legal way to blow off steam, it's not super surprising. The celebration weekend, as mentioned, was full of alcohol. There's just very wild parties that would happen. And um, yeah, I, I... can't speak to exactly why this is the case, but I, I do think it is a lot of people reckoning with just like the work that they're doing, the very least just the hours. I think the brutality of McKinsey for most people is not really serving like 
evil clients necessarily, but it is just like doing a ton of work. And often it is just like soul crushing and how alienated you might feel from, from what you're doing. It seems like it was a, a lot of hazing uh, in a way. Now, of course, McKinsey famously took $27.5 million of taxpayer money from New York City. At the end of their time, what were the results for Rikers Island violence? Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing that McKinsey was doing at Rikers was this housing and classification um, change. So trying to come up with statistical understanding of what drives violence within uh, the different jails and classify people based on like predictors of violence. Um, Rikers was doing something like this before, but it just wasn't really grounded in any kind of like empirical basis is my understanding. And then McKinsey basically got in trouble for putting all of the people who were less likely to be violent together and then saying like, look, we've reduced violence by this much and like you can scale it this way and like generalizing results that probably couldn't generalize. And um, ProPublica had a report showing that McKinsey essentially fudged the numbers and made up claims about what their the impact of their work would be and now that system i believe has just been scrapped entirely by the city and so it's really hard to point to any positive thing that happened from that project and you'd expect a lot more for nearly 30 million dollars from what's ostensibly the the best consulting firm in the world just incredible uh we're gonna take a very quick break we'll be right back this is progress The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back. Your life took a very interesting turn in January of 2017, in the last days of Barack Obama's administration, before most of us knew what ICE was. You were offered a project with this Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Did you know much about them going into the work? I did not. Uh, I think I had some dim awareness. If you had told me the acronym or the, the, the letters, I, I might have been able to piece together the acronym. Um, but I think like a lot of young lefty or liberal people at the time, I sort of was under the spell that Obama was like a competent and, and humane technocrat and uh, that he was doing the best he could. And when I was presented with the option to work there, you just have very little time to decide maybe like a weekend at best you get like right. your assignment on a Friday and then you start on Monday. Um, and I wanted to do government work. I, as mentioned, wasn't interested in, in the private sector work nearly as much. And even if it was a client I didn't agree with, I wanted to learn more. Yeah. And that what we were doing at first was just like talent management and like an organizational health index, which sounds very anodyne. 
Um, and ultimately, if that work had been successful, it would have made ICE more effective at its mission. So I should have been questioning more what that mission was and whether I wanted to support it. But things changed a lot when Trump became president. Yeah, I'll say we all got to know a lot about ICE right when you were working there. What what was it like working at ICE's headquarters? Yeah, I mean, I think in the second week or like something like five or six days into Trump being president, uh, he issued two executive orders one of which changed the criteria for deportation. So Obama had targeted only people who had come within the last two years, I believe, and people with relatively severe criminal records for deportation. And then Trump said, like, everybody essentially was a target for deportation. And that meant, like, something like 12 million people could just be deported uh, by ICE or you know domestic law enforcement could transfer them to ICE. The other was that uh, it, they directed... ICE to hire 10,000 additional deportation officers. That's right. And this would have nearly tripled the number of deportation officers at ICE. And ICE was not that big of an agency and the people working there were not very competent or um, yeah, just like they were kind of the bottom of the totem pole when you look at federal law enforcement officers with like FBI agents being, you know, the the best scoring on the, the standardized tests or whatever. And so this just seemed terrifying to me. ICE as an agency was also freaking out because this is just like a lot of pressure. Any organization that size having to triple its workforce is going to really struggle. And I was just terrified of like, yeah, the humanitarian disaster that I thought would unfold if you deployed an additional 10,000 people in Trump's ICE to terrorize immigrants. So, I mean, you had a four-person team in ICE, just like you had at Rikers, and you write in the piece that you were managing an organizational transformation what did that look like and what were the goals that were assigned to your team? So, yeah, at first it was just like survey the people working at ICE, get a sense of their culture, like how they like the job, ways in which they could improve. And this all went out the window within two or three weeks. Uh, McKinsey, in response to reporting on ICE that came out in The New York Times and ProPublica, said they didn't change the direction of their work. It was all set in place by Obama. And like that's just bullshit i'm not sure if i can curse on this but uh, you're you're it's you're uh, welcome to yeah it's encouraged yeah and so uh yeah i i ended up not ending ending up doing that but i was instead tasked to work on hiring models to figure out how you could actually hire ten thousand new deportation officers uh to meet the criteria of the executive order and so it was like to me felt like the worst part of the work just increasing a workforce that i thought would just be doing a lot of damage But it ended up looking like just spreadsheets. And, you know, I was just stuck in this in-between phase of, like, trying to solve how to make the spreadsheet work. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And then also thinking, like, oh, my God, this is just, like, laying the groundwork for a humanitarian disaster. Yeah. I mean, arrest more people with available resources and remove people faster. I guess that sounds really good on paper until you think about the humanitarian cost of the kind of guys trying to do that. Did you really have a call? with a senior partner uh, managing the relationship with ICE who who compared your work for ICE to their work on implementing Obamacare? Yeah, uh, Richard Elder was a senior partner on the project and we had this call across all the McKinsey consultants working for ICE. It was like maybe like 15 people at 8 a.m. on a Thursday morning. And he said like, yeah, sometimes at McKinsey you get some projects where you disagree with the, the politics of it. Like a bunch of McKinsey partners disagree with Obamacare, but they still implemented the projects anyway because of, you know, their duty or whatever. 
and as if these are like the same things. And yeah, elders, no, like, they're 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 working they're working against their conscience to bring health care to people. So you can work against your conscience to deport children away from their families. Yeah, right, right. I mean, he just saw it as like, oh, they they're on the other side of that issue politically, just like you're on the other side of this issue politically. Obviously, I think there's an asymmetry between those things. And yeah, it was just pretty, pretty shocking. And uh, he said, we just do execution. We don't do policy. And I asked him on the call, what would have stopped us from procuring barbed wire for concentration camps in Nazi Germany? And he muttered something about McKinsey being a values-based organization. But at the time, nothing in McKinsey's values would have actually said, no, don't procure barbed wire for the Nazis. Uh, they just say, do right by your clients. You know, you have an obligation to dissent within your team, which I was, you know, utilizing in that moment, but it ultimately didn't change McKinsey's work. You write in the piece that uh, you learn not only does McKinsey fail to make the world better, it often colludes with those who make the world worse. I'm curious, was there one incident that made you decide that this wasn't for you and that you actually wanted to be a whistleblower on this, or was it a gradual process? When I was at ICE and Trump became president, I was thinking about ways I could make things better or at least stop making them worse. And I was thinking about, yeah, leaking information to the press. I opposed it internally. I, I, I spoke out. There were, you know, options of like how long of a timeline to hire these people and like whether to account for attrition. So I pushed for things like that. But I, I, I think just elders' comments and the fact that all these people were opposing this work, but it was still happening nonetheless, was just a really eye-opening experience for me where it's like, okay, even if the median person at McKinsey has like good views on immigration and opposes ICE's mission, like McKinsey itself will still serve ICE because it is an amoral institution right. that will do what its clients ask. And that just, yeah, kind of, kind of brought the, sh the scales down from my eyes and I no longer had an idealistic view of what McKinsey was. I ended up leaving about a year after that, working on like some private sector clients and doing like work that probably was just pretty neutral or maybe a little bit bad. And, you know, it's just not great to leave a job six months in. I was still trying to, you know, think about my, my career and everything. But like, yeah, there was no like, oh, I quit out of, um, you know, moral indignation or something. I just sort of slinked away from that work. And, and uh, I eventually did write an essay for current affairs anonymously about McKinsey, which was like the start of a career in journalism. And yeah, I think that that ICE project and then obviously reading the reporting later about McKinsey's work, turbocharging opioid sales, its work for Saudi Arabia, um, its work in a whole range of, of horrible clients and, and industries just like confirmed what I had already learned years ago. And, and there must have been others. You must have had peers who came in as idealistic as you, hoping to make the world better, who then realized that's just on the recruitment papers. We're really here in service of some pretty bad guys. Yeah, I, I think I was on the more mission oriented side of people there, like in the D.C. office, the people doing federal you know, public sector work often are more mission oriented and like actually care about, you know, what their clients are doing. But I do remember on one of McKinsey's values days, which happened every year, we had it exercise where there was like maybe 70 people in the room and there were five sources of value and it was like team like personal growth client something else and like mission and you wrote down on a piece of paper what your source of value was and i wrote mission and it was me and one other person and everybody else had picked a different source of meaning for their for their work 
And I was like, oh, maybe I actually just am at the wrong place. And this is not an organization full of people who are <laughs> trying to help uh, make the world better. And uh, maybe maybe I was just like very dumb and naive to think that. But uh, that that is a lot of what you're sold. And again, people there are often just like very interpersonally kind and like good to work with. And it's just very easy to mistake that for working to improve the world. And now you have become a whistleblower. You have the cover, this excellent cover story in the nation. Has there been any blowback? Have you had any uh, negative repercussions from speaking out about your time there? Not so far. I mean, people on Twitter have yelled at me, uh, which, you know, means you're just having some kind of impact. Um, yes. Congratulations on your moral victory there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, yeah, some people have criticized it as like self-serving or self-centered. And it's a personal essay. Um, I, I wrote the current affairs essay as this more like structural analytical piece a while back. And I think the two complement each other well. I think it's just important to tell stories of what it's actually like for people to go through this. And, you know, some people are like, oh, it was obvious from the beginning that McKinsey's like was selling a crock of shit when it comes to their uh, recruitment materials. But in 2015, it really was a very different world. Uh, and like McKinsey had much less bad press about it. And yeah. now I think it's a lot harder if you're an idealistic young person to say, like, I'm going to go work at McKinsey to make the world better, you know, after headline after headline, uh, showing ways in which McKinsey was making the world worse. But, yeah, I, I think it's important to tell these stories. And for young people who are considering jobs like this, I would just encourage them to work in uh, industry or work for organizations that are altruistic, that are like actually not just dedicated to profitability. And uh, I think that the biggest shame of places like McKinsey and other professional services uh, firms is that they take smart people who could otherwise do work that helps improve the world and don't do that. Garrison Lovely is the author of the new cover story for the nation, Confessions of a McKinsey Whistleblower. Check it out. It's a great article. Garrison, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really a pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do.
Welcome back. This past June, the House of Representatives Oversight and Accountability Committee held a hearing you might have heard about on UFOs, or UAPs, as they're now called, featuring retired Air Force officer and former Intel official turned whistleblower David Grush, who testified that the American government had retrieved pieces of crashed extraterrestrial spacecraft and possessed non-human remains. This comes six years after the interstellar object Umumama, I'm saying it wrong, Umamuma, I'll get the pronunciation down, but this object passed very close to Earth and was classified as a near-Earth object. The word is Hawaiian for scout or messenger because it was the first interstellar object ever recorded. And these events come amidst repeated testimony from multiple Navy pilots reporting aircraft they cannot explain. As tentative as the media response has been, it's clear we are living in a remarkable period of human and Earth history. Uh, Avi Loeb is the longest-serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. He's the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. He also heads the Galileo Project, and he's the author of eight books and over a 1,000 scientific papers. In 2012, Time selected Professor Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. And in his New York Times bestseller, Extraterrestrial, he presented a bold idea that our solar system had been visited by advanced alien technology from a different star. Now, in his new book, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars, he goes even deeper, showing how humans are going to have to really reset our expectations of what contact with interstellar extraterrestrial civilizations might realistically look like. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Avi Loeb to SiriusXM. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure for me as well. Thank you, sir. I'm delighted to have you. I really, really appreciate your work. I I'd like to start with the most obvious question, which is what really began your interest in this field of UFOs or unidentified anomalous phenomena, as they're now called? Well, I'm an astrophysicist and uh, I respond to anomalous data. And uh, only over the past decade, we were able to find objects from outside the solar system. It sounds paradoxical, but uh, we just didn't have uh, survey telescopes that can monitor the sky and look for reflected sunlight from objects as big as a football field within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Uh, and only a decade ago, such a survey telescope uh, was constructed named the PANSTARS in Hawaii. And it was uh, put into action uh, by a congressional decision to look for, uh, to find all uh, objects bigger than a football field uh, that are coming close to Earth. These are called near-Earth objects because yes. they pose a risk if they were to collide with Earth and they could destroy a city like Manhattan. Uh, and uh, uh, so um, this telescope was constructed and started looking. And uh, in 2017, October 2017, it noticed an object coming close to Earth, flagged it as a near-Earth object, but then realized that the speed of this object uh, implies that it's not bound by gravity to the sun. It's moving too mm -hmm. fast. Uh, so it was the first reported uh, interstellar object. And uh, it was given the name Oumuamua, as you mentioned. Uh, and uh, for me, it was intriguing because a decade earlier, I predicted that it will never find such objects because we calculated how many space rocks there should be coming to us from other stars based on what we know about the solar system. And we were off by at least a factor of 100. We predicted it will not find any. But then the fact that he found one meant that, that there is a much more abundant population of objects in interstellar space than we expected 
based on what we know about ejection of rocks from the solar system, assuming that all stars are like the sun. And uh, to me, when I'm wrong, it's actually an opportunity to learn something new. Uh, to many of mm. my colleagues, uh, it's an opportunity to say the data must be wrong, which uh, we will get to. Uh, but uh, uh, I was intrigued, uh, you know, so the first object uh, was discovered from outside the solar system and with a population that is far more abundant than we imagine. And uh, then uh, I still uh, expected it to be a rock. But as time went on, every data point about this object implied that it's not a rock of the type that we are familiar with. Uh, the best fit to its shape was that of a pancake, a flat yes. shape. Uh, and that was not me, that was other astronomers. And, uh, you know, analyzing the reflection of sunlight as this object was tumbling. And then another paper indicated that the object is pushed away from the sun without uh, any cometary evaporation that could give it uh, the rocket effect. And mm. uh, this implied that uh, to me that maybe the sun is the sunlight bouncing off it is pushing it. But for that, the object had to be very thin. And nature doesn't make such uh, sails that are sailing on light, uh, you know. And uh, I suggested maybe it's uh, artificial in origin and uh, wrote a scientific paper about it. And initially, uh, you know, the public was extremely interested, but then gradually my colleagues started getting upset about the, this idea that it's not natural. And they wrote over the past six years, multiple papers trying to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua. Uh, one of them suggested, oh no, it's uh, actually a hydrogen iceberg. So when it evaporates, we can't see the cometary tail. And then it turned out, uh, I wrote a paper that this mm -hmm. uh, hydrogen iceberg would get evaporated along the way. It wouldn't survive the journey. And so uh, then there was a suggestion, oh, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg. Then it turned out there is not enough nitrogen, solid nitrogen in the Milky Way galaxy to account for such a population. So then uh, the suggestion was, oh, maybe it's a dust bunny, a collection of dust particles, you know, a, a cloud that is 100 times less dense than air. And the problem with that, it wouldn't survive coming close to the sun and getting exactly. heated by hundreds of degrees. So anyway, at the end, there are all these objects that we've never seen before. Me being just like the kid in uh, Hans Christian Andersen's tale, the emperor has no clothes. I basically said, this object has no tail. And people around me said, oh no, we are the adults in the room. You know, it does have a, a tail, you just can't see it. Uh, and... Um, you know, I just argued the obvious that um, it must be something different than the rocks that we are familiar with in the solar system. And um, then uh, a couple of years later, uh, I found um, a meteor that uh, uh, was discovered in 2014, actually, by the U.S. government satellites. And um, and then uh, uh, it, it was moving again at a very high speed, so it implied that it's not bound to the sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, moreover, it maintained its integrity down to the lower atmosphere, uh, implying that it had material strength uh, higher than all the space rocks that were catalogued by NASA over the past decade, 272 of them. So um, it implied that maybe it's artificial, maybe it, it's like a Voyager meteor where imagine Voyager mm -hmm. going into interstellar space, colliding with another planet like the Earth and uh, and then uh, appearing as a meteor of unusual material strength because it's made of stainless steel and unusual speed because it was propelled by chemical rocket. Um, so we went to the Pacific Ocean and studied the, whatever was left from this meteor and found that indeed the composition 
and this is a result from uh, this summer, the composition is nothing that was seen before in the solar system. So altogether, you know, the first two interstellar objects appear unusual. That's what brought me to the subject. And a couple of years ago, I decided to establish the Galileo project, which um, uh, is now uh, operating an observatory, looking uh, at the sky 24-7 and uh, trying to see if there is anything other than birds, uh, airplanes, uh, drones, drones, balloons, mm. something from out of this earth. And so that's what brought me to the subject. Amazing. So this was not anything that was in your field of uh, passion or expertise before 2017? No, not at all. I'm uh, trying to be guided by evidence. And the strange thing is many of my colleagues in academia, they uh, refuse to get engaged uh, in, in, in this study. And they say they know the answer in advance. Uh, they try to behave like the adults in the room, but they're missing all the fun. <laughs> I love the way you phrase it, but your your description of Oumuamua is is fascinating because you're right. It's too flat to, to be a, a rock or an asteroid. And of course, there is no evaporation, so it can't be a comet. Um, and of course, a couple of years later after this, they, they found another object, didn't they? That had the same yeah, quality. So it was being pushed away from exactly. the sun, but there was no evaporation. Exactly. So that was uh, three years uh, after that, uh, after Oumuamua, and it was... Uh, September 2020, um, and the object was given the name 2020 SO, discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii. And within a few weeks, they realized it's actually a rocket booster from a NASA launch in 1966 to the moon. Mm. Uh, so clearly, uh, it had thin walls uh, made of uh, stainless steel and uh, it didn't evaporate. And we know it's artificial because we produced it. Exactly. So who produced Oumuamua? Who launched Oumuamua? Why did it enter our galaxy from another? Now, I, I find it fascinating that the possibility that, that the surface was some kind of membrane that reflected light that was produced by some kind of technology, because there's no discernible propulsion on it. It could be, like you said, a, a, a solar sail. Right. So it could be, it could have been designed for that purpose, but it could also be a surface layer from a bigger object or a broken piece of a Dyson sphere. That's kind of a megastructure that a megastructure that was imagined by Freeman Dyson about uh, 60 years ago, uh, that a civilization that is advanced enough will build around its star to harvest uh, the energy. We don't know where, what its purpose was, but anything thin uh, that uh, has a large surface area for its mass would get pushed uh, by uh, reflecting sunlight. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Now, um, you mentioned the Galileo Project. You certainly had a lot of donors who were very, very passionate about your work and have generously funded your research. The Galileo Project is from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and it's just solely dedicated to the search for alien technology near and on the Earth. What is the overall goal, to achieve a a high-quality pixel photograph? Yeah, so, well, it has... The Galileo Project has three branches. One is related to finding more objects like Oumuamua that uh, we discussed and perhaps getting much better data and designing maybe a space mission that will uh, rendezvous with such an object. Uh, Another is to do the expedition of the type that I mentioned to interstellar meteors. But the main focus is uh, on building observatories and monitoring the sky, like I mentioned. And um, here the idea is that Uh, We hear about military and intelligence uh, agencies uh, reporting about objects they cannot figure out. These are called unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAP. And there was a congressional hearing uh, a month ago uh, in which uh, David Grush uh, spoke about programs within government uh, to uh, perhaps um, retrieve and reverse engineer things that... Uh, belong, uh, I mean, to technologies from outside of this earth. And um, we don't know if that's real or not, but we do know that uh, there are reports of uh, objects with uh, uh, unusual flight characteristics. And now Mm -hmm. not all of the UAP are real. Uh, I mean, there is an office in the Pentagon called Aero, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Uh, And the director of that office said that... um, a few percent of the reports appear to be truly anomalous. Uh, others are can be explained most likely as balloons or, or drones. And so, but still, um, you know, they their uh, duty is to to figure out if there's anything of national security risk uh, to the U.S. And uh, f- my perspective is anything that says "Made in China" on it is boring. <laughs> I really want to know if uh, there is something from outside of this earth. So it's completely complementary. I do think if the government has information about anything interstellar, it should share it with scientists like myself and make it uh, known to the public. There is no point in hiding it. Absolutely. And it seems tentatively like our government is getting closer to that. Are you as surprised as I am that the government is essentially announced to the public that uh, there is evidence of extraterrestrial technology and life? Well, um, I want to see the evidence before I believe it, uh, because the government is not always telling us... uh, uh, The the government is not a scientific organization. So uh, what they could have done is perhaps if they did retrieve some materials or information, they would uh, perhaps uh, give it to uh, other entities, Uh, It could be national laboratories, it could be corporations. Um, But the problem is that we haven't seen it in an open way, the scientific community. And so we cannot help government figure out what these things mean. And uh, anything that comes from interstellar space obviously had nothing to do with the national security because uh, 
maybe it started its journey millions or billions of years ago before mm. humans existed on this earth so the, obviously it was it doesn't care about how we split the land and among nations on this rock and so to You're me right. it sounds like uh, it, it's about time that the government uh, will come clean if it has anything and show it to scientists and it would be of great interest of course and uh, I really hope that they have something. If they don't, I don't rely on them. Uh, I'm trying to figure it out as a scientist myself because the sky is not classified, the oceans are not classified. We can figure it out. Well, then let me ask you about your maritime expedition you mentioned to trawl the Pacific Ocean near Papua New Guinea for possible um, evidence of extraterrestrial technology. I know that this meteor exploded uh, in January of 2014, it was moving about 37 miles per second. I is it true that the government has confirmed with some level of certainty that that object was interstellar? Yeah, so what happened was um, they put it in a NASA catalog of meteors and nothing was done about it uh, since 2014. And then in 2019, after the of Terra Muamua uh, was known. Uh, I was intrigued by the, uh, I found this catalog because I was interviewed for a radio program uh, about another meteor and I found this catalog and I asked my student, let's uh, check if any of the fastest moving meteors in this catalog could have originated from uh, interstellar space and we found this meteor. And uh, then uh, the paper that we wrote was not uh, accepted for publication because the reviewers argued that uh, they don't believe the U.S. government. So uh, I managed ah. to get uh, someone from the White House uh, working with the U.S. Space Command. They issued, the, they went back to the data and issued a formal letter. It took them three years. So in March 2022, they issued a letter to NASA stating explicitly that this uh, object was from interstellar space at the 99.999% confidence. And Amazing. you would think that will settle the issue. I mean, our paper was accepted after that for publication, but just a, a few months ago, there was a paper by so-called experts on space rocks. Uh, and they said that uh, this data is wrong. In fact, the speed the measurement is off by a factor of three. This is a much slower object that actually is made of stone and belongs to the solar system. And we went there. We went to the Pacific Ocean, to the location, and found a, a unique type of uh, molten droplets from the surface of the object that was never seen before with composition that cannot be found in the solar system with elements like uh, beryllium, lanthanum, uranium that are hundreds of times more abundant than in solar system materials. And uh, we wrote a paper about it, a scientific paper. And by that, we, I think we, I, I sleep better at night because I, I realized that the U.S. Space Command knows what they are doing. We found the materials of this object. Uh, but it just shows you that within uh, people, uh, the community that practices science, there are people who claim to be scientists, but they would dismiss data uh, just so that their model would agree with uh, with the modified right. data. And to me, that's a, a violation of uh, uh, your definition as a scientist. You're, you're supposed to respect data and say, what does it mean, actually? And uh, especially after someone else like myself goes there and finds materials, uh, why would you ever dismiss the data and say, no, what was found must be from the solar system? It's not a stone. We know that uh, based on the latest findings.
Well, and all the data said that this object exploded in the lower atmosphere. That doesn't happen with any conventional meteors, does it? That's right. Uh, usually they explode much higher up. So the only way those people could accommodate that with a model for a stone was to say the speed measurement was wrong by a factor of three. Uh, so it was so slow that it was moving, uh, it didn't get much friction with air. It was moving really slowly. And therefore, it's not nothing unusual. It's, it's just a stone. And the, the point is that if the U.S. Space Command would get the speed measurement wrong by a factor of three, you know, they would alert... Uh, you know, the president of Mexico for a missile that is heading towards Washington, D.C. I mean, right. it would be, uh, it's completely incompetent on their behalf to write a letter to NASA to say that they are sure it's interstellar when they're off by a factor of three. And, and that's the argument being made in the Astrophysical Journal uh, as of two months ago, when I came back from the expedition with materials in my hand that by now we analyzed and look extra solar. The, the composition was never found in the solar system. Never found. All your labs determined that they, they couldn't figure out what these molten droplets were made of or where they came from. Yeah, no, I mean, so we found the, the composition, we put it in the scientific paper, and uh, it doesn't resemble th uh, rocks on Earth, and the Moon, Mars, or asteroids. And we argue that it must have originated outside the solar system. And, and also it's possible that it's not uh, natural. It's not necessarily a product of a, a natural process, but could have been selected technologically. You know, these elements were serving some purpose. Uh, someone mentioned to me that lanthanum and molybdenum are used as substrates or semiconductors. So who knows? I mean, uranium, which is almost a thousand times more abundant in those uh, spherules, in those molten droplets, we know is used for energy production in, in fission reactors. So these elements could serve a technological purpose. Um, and in order to figure out if, if the object was technological, we need to find bigger pieces. And that will be the goal of our next expedition. We're planning to go there again within the coming year and, and look for bigger pieces. Well, that's why I find your book Interstellar so fascinating, because we've all been raised on science fiction and our fantasies of what first contact with an extraterrestrial civilization might look like. And it's all very cinematic with Vulcans and, and Steven Spielberg films. But your book is really about how the reality will be uh, a bit more benign, uh, like some kind of AI or some kind of, you know, space junk, possibly from a long extinct civilization, which, quite frankly, I find thrilling uh, something benign and mundane in real life is much more exciting than something fantastical from a Hollywood movie. That's right. And uh, I don't think we should assume anything um, based on uh, science fiction uh, in terms of what we might encounter, because um, our imagination is more limited than that of uh, nature. I mean, it's based on what we encountered on Earth. And we already know that the universe contains uh, material that uh, was never... Uh, found uh, in the solar system. And um, uh, that is called dark matter. Uh, we don't know what it is, uh, but we definitely know that uh, we, we never detected it and it's most of the matter in the universe. Um, so it should teach us modesty. You know, we, we shouldn't assume that what lies outside the solar system is the same as what we already know, like these astronomers did when they said it's stones. And... Um, 
you know, I, I, I think um, the next few years are likely to be very exciting. And um, let's just see what, what we find as we examine more interstellar objects uh, and maybe find bigger pieces of the, of the first one that I mentioned. What do you think, Professor, of whistleblower David Grush's testimony that the government is in possession of extraterrestrial remains? I was a bit surprised that didn't get more traction in our media. Yeah, I think what is missing right now is the evidence. He did not witness it. Right. Uh, he just heard people talk about it. And it's very intriguing. And I think the Congress should then dig deeper or, uh, and, and try to find out what is really happening. Uh, it's very intriguing. Uh, uh, if it's real, if, if indeed uh, something <laughs> exists or, uh, similar to what he was describing. But to believe it, we really need to see the evidence. I read, sir, that you said um, it is our civic duty as scientists to bring clarity using scientific instrumentation and methodology. You're certainly doing that, but you have, of course, gotten all this criticism for speaking on these topics. Uh, it's a bit disappointing. What do you think is, is motivating that backlash from some uh, academics? Well, uh, one aspect is there the sense of superiority relative to the public. So the public cares a lot about this subject. Two-thirds of Americans believe in uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. And um, so um, academia tends to shy away from uh, the public uh, attention. Uh, and uh, I sure. think that on this topic, it's, uh, not, um, it's not warranted. Uh, and I think it's exactly the opposite that, you know, since uh, uh, citizens pay taxes uh, that support science, we should attend to the public's interest if we can explore those subjects uh, scientifically, which is pretty much what I'm trying to do. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is this arrogance that, um, you know, we believe that we play an important role in the universe. And at first we thought we are at the center of the universe. And now we think, oh, no, we, we, the Earth actually moves around the sun. But uh, there might be nothing like us anywhere in the universe. And mm. that is considered the, the default assumption. Uh, and it's claimed that to consider a neighbor is extraordinary. And I think it's exactly the opposite because there are billions of planet sun uh, systems in the Milky Way. And I think it's arrogant to believe that we are unique and special. And it's very likely that we were preceded uh, by other technological civilizations that sent uh, equipment to space that we can find. So we just need to look for any packages near our doorstep, which I'm trying to do. Professor Avi Loeb is the chair of Harvard's astronomy department, and the new book is Interstellar, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. I love what you and the Galileo Project are doing, and we'd love to have you back anytime. This is an amazing subject of expertise. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.